Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Here we are taught of the birth, of the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by these means, by his conception of the Holy Spirit and his birth of the Virgin Mary, it is by this means that Christ, or the eternal Son of God, took to himself and united to himself our flesh, a true human nature, a reasonable soul, and a very real human body. And the scriptures teach, and we believe, that this conception, this birth, this true and real incarnation of the Son of God was for our sakes. Indeed, in order to reconcile man to himself, God became man. The Son of God himself, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the only begotten Son of the Eternal Father became flesh. He became man in order to redeem man, reconcile man to God forever. And as we looked at Matthew chapter 1, in verses 18 through 25 several weeks ago and began to consider questions 34 and 35 of an Orthodox catechism, we noticed several things in particular concerning Christ's conception and Christ's birth of the Virgin. We noted, first of all, that such a conception and such a birth unique as they are in the history of the world and the history of redemption, is in fact the fulfillment of God's promises. And not just his promises in general to save his people from their sins, but in particular, that is in particular with respect to the incarnation of the Son of God in particular with respect to a holy conception and virgin birth. In particular, we noted that Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, quoted here in the context of Matthew chapter 1, speaks clearly of the birth of Emmanuel, the birth of of Emmanuel by the virgin. Not just a young maiden, but a virgin. A woman who had yet to engage 
in any kind of sexual activity. The son, the child that comes forth from her is indeed God with us. God, the son incarnate. And we noticed secondly that in addition to the incarnation being the fulfillment of promise, that the incarnation, this coming into the world, this coming in the flesh and blood of man, is the effect of divine power. The Son of God takes to himself a true human nature. He unites to himself a real human body and a real reasonable human soul, even as the Holy Spirit himself overshadows the womb of the virgin. The language overshadowing is not used here in Matthew, but it is used by Luke to speak of the way in which Christ is conceived in her womb. Matthew simply uses the language of conception and conception of or by the Holy Spirit. In effect, the Spirit performs a miracle upon the womb of the Virgin and creates within her the body, the soul, the true humanity, which the Son of God assumed. And we noted that while particularly this work of conception is attributed to the Holy Spirit, it is in fact an undivided work of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are as the one God, the cause of the Incarnation, even as we are taught throughout Scripture that the Son Himself takes the flesh of the Virgin, while the Spirit conceives Him in the Virgin's womb. This is a miracle, a supernatural working of the true God, Indeed, the Spirit of God. The incarnation, that is the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus, is the fulfillment of promise. It is the effect of divine power. Thirdly, we noted that this way of incarnation, this holy conception and virgin birth, ensures the purity of the mediator. It ensures that Jesus Christ is holy, if you will. Not that he was unholy at all with respect to his deity, 
The Son of God is himself true God. And so perfectly holy. But what of the flesh? What of the body? What of the soul that he assumes? If in fact, original sin is passed on from one generation to the next, from one person to the next, if you will, by way of ordinary conception, what of Christ, true man? What of Christ who assumes a true human nature? How could he reconcile us to God if he himself assumes Sinful flesh. That is flesh itself, which is sinful by way of original sin. Original corruption. Well, hence the extraordinary conception and birth of the Lord Jesus. He is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not create anything Unholy. His working upon the womb of the virgin ensures that Jesus Christ, even according to his humanity, is holy, harmless, undefiled, as the author to the Hebrews puts it. But so also the fact that the Holy Spirit conceives the Lord Jesus Christ, in the womb of a virgin. If in fact, it is ordinary conception that ensures the propagation of original sin, then the fact that our Lord's conception is anything but ordinary, ensures that he is free from original sin. The fact that he is brought forth in the womb of the virgin ensures his purity. And it's interesting that over the years, this has been a notion, at least in modern, in the modern era, it's been a notion that's been downplayed, even rejected. And yet, it is true and necessary. Necessary because, again, if we are to be sanctified we must have a sanctified mediator. Indeed, even as question 35 of the Catechism puts it, as it speaks of the prophet of Christ's holy conception and nativity, it answers that he is our mediator and does cover with his innocence and perfect holiness my sins in which I was conceived, that they may not come In the sight of God. If he is to cover our sins. 
the very sins in which we were conceived, he himself must be perfectly innocent and perfectly holy. And this manner of conception, this manner of birth, ensures that as he comes into the world, he comes into the world holy, harmless, undefiled. Jesus Christ took to himself a true human nature, yet without sin. And he did so in order to be our mediator. And in fact, that's what we need to notice in the next place, in the fourth place. And there are two additional things then that we want to notice regarding the holy conception and virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. In the fourth place, then, we want to understand that this particular, this unique conception and birth is necessary to the fulfillment of divine purpose. It is necessary to the fulfillment of divine purpose. And what is that purpose? It is the purpose of salvation. In the context of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, verses 18 through 25, notice, especially in verse 21, that as the angel speaks to Joseph in his dream and tells him that what is conceived in the womb of the virgin is of the Holy Spirit that this son is to be named Jesus precisely because this Jesus shall save his people from their sins. The connection between the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus on the one hand and his calling as Savior expressed and signified in his name Jesus, that connection is not accidental. It's not incidental. It's intentional. And it expresses the necessary connection between his pure conception and birth, his taking to himself a true human nature, yet without sin, the connection between the reality of the incarnation and the sum total of his office, which is to save his people from their sins. There is intention in the incarnation, and it is the intention of salvation. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And to save sinners... By himself, that is, through what he does as the mediator. What he does in giving his life a ransom for many. We've already noted long ago from the Catechism how it emphasizes the necessity of Christ's 
deity, that is, that he is true God, the necessity of his true humanity, but also then the necessity of the union of those two natures in the one person. And that here is expressed as well in the Catechism, particularly with respect to Christ's taking and uniting to himself, the Son's uniting to himself, the very nature of man, yet without sin. This is necessary. Necessary for him to be our Savior. And as we think of this necessity, it's important that we remind ourselves that we cannot think of the two natures of Jesus Christ in the abstract. That is, we cannot say the deity of Christ saves or the humanity of Christ saves. But we have to say that it is Christ in the concrete, the person in whom these two natures are united. It is this person that saves. Yes, he saves as God, He saves, in a manner of speaking, as a man, but the one person that saves is God and man. Because it is God saving and man saved. The one who saves man is himself man, but is himself also true God. And it's important that we think in these terms precisely because there is no greater mystery of our salvation than the mystery of the Incarnation, except maybe the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And as we speak of the Incarnation, As we speak of the person of Jesus Christ, we must do so carefully. Precisely because of this intention. Precisely because of God's saving purpose. Precisely because this person is the Savior. He that shall save his people from their sins. Many a heretic has dashed themselves against the rock of either confusing the two natures or separating the two natures. Confounding the two natures or separating these two natures. There is one Jesus. There is one Savior. And that one Savior is true God and true man. That does not mean that the two natures are mingled together as if Again, deity in the abstract 
becomes humanity in the abstract. But no, the person of the Son takes to himself a true human nature. The natures are not confounded together. The properties even of God the Son as God are not somehow communicated or transferred to his humanity. No. The two retain their distinct properties. Jesus is both God and man. But at the same time, this true incarnation achieved in the way of a holy conception and virgin birth does not allow us to then separate the two natures and speak of Christ as if he were two persons. As if his deity and his humanity were somehow so opposed to each other that as he comes into the world, the son comes into the world, he only appears as a man or he is such a man because He is a distinct person from the person of the Son. Again, many a heretic have confused the natures. Spoken of the natures as if one is changed into the other. Separated them one from another. in a way that ultimately takes away from the reality that by way of this conception and birth, God became man. That the Son of God took to himself and united to his person true humanity, a true human nature, The very nature of man. Flesh and blood. A real human soul. Like unto us in all things. Sin accepted. Indeed he came to save. Man. Which properly is a calling that belongs only to God. But he came to save man. And to do that, he must become man. For it is man that sinned. And so man must repay what is owed to divine justice. We must then speak carefully of Christ. Carefully of his person. Carefully 
of the union of the two natures in the person of the Son, precisely because if we are to be saved, if God's covenant with men, with sinners, is to be enacted and ratified, God himself must become man. And as a man, bring us to God. It is necessary for our salvation, God having willed that his son would become a man. God having willed that the son of God would take to himself the flesh and blood Indeed, the body and soul, a true human nature, having willed that it would be so and that this would be the means by which men were saved from their sins, so it was, and so it must be. And so when Jesus was born, and when Jesus was named as such by Joseph. The one that was born, a son, was indeed the Son of God who became man. And again, he did so for us. The Son of God, as the Catechism puts it, who is and continues true and everlasting God, took the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, through the working of the Holy Spirit, that he might be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. And it is this one, This one who is made like unto his brethren in all things sin accepted. That is not a shame to call us his brethren. And it is he who brings many sons to glory. It is he who is our mediator. It is he who is God and represents God to us. And it is he who is our mediator, who is like unto us, who as our head and savior brings us safely to God. He came to reconcile. He came to redeem. The son became a man in order to save Men. And so in addition to the fulfillment of promise, in addition to being the effect of divine power, in addition to ensuring the purity of the mediator, this incarnation is necessary to the divine purpose. This incarnation of the Son, his taking true human nature by way of conception of the Holy Spirit and birth of the Virgin Mary, 
This indeed is necessary for our salvation. For we needed one who was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And this one, this one alone is conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Fifthly and finally then, this true incarnation of the Lord Jesus, this holy conception and virgin birth of the Son of God is necessary for us to know and believe. Eternal life, we are told, is to know God, the true God, and Him whom He sent. Jesus Christ. If it is necessary then for us to know the one sent, Jesus Christ, it is also necessary for us to know the way in which he was sent. To know something of this mystery of incarnation, this Mystery of the Son of God taking to Himself our flesh by way of a miraculous conception by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin. Again, the one that comes forth is Jesus, the Savior. He is Emmanuel. He is God. With us. And if we are to know God, if we are to know Him who was sent, if we are to know this salvation, we must know Jesus and we must know Jesus aright. It does not mean that we can ever comprehend, fully wrap our minds around. The reality of the eternal and infinite Son of God taking to Himself finite human nature. I think this is precisely why when the Council of Chalcedon met and sought to express something of the truth of the person of Jesus Christ and the truth of His incarnation... And even the effect of that incarnation, that is the personal union of the two natures. It gave us language to speak of the incarnation that is entirely negative. That is, when speaking of the way in which the two natures are united together in the one person. It says that we cannot speak of the nature, so we cannot speak of the person by, or we have to speak of the natures and the union of the two natures as without confusion, without change, without 
separation. We have to negate certain errors. We have to negate from our minds and our conception of the incarnation certain things. And beyond that, it is difficult to go. But we must say those things without confusion. The natures are united in the person of Jesus Christ. Without change, the natures are united in the person of Jesus Christ. Without confusion, without separation. And then we can speak of the fact that while he is true God, while he is true man, he is the one Lord Jesus Christ. This one, the same in Deity as his Father. This one, the same in humanity as us, yet without sin. And the same with us, yet without sin, precisely because, as one church father put it, what he did not assume, he did not heal. Any one part of human nature, unassumed by the Son of God, remains affected by sin. Had he not a real body, the effects of sin upon the body would remain. Had he not a true, reasonable human soul, effects of sin upon the soul would remain. But apart from the Son assuming, it was not possible for men to be saved. For who has the power to save but God? And it's necessary for us to know this. It's necessary for us to believe this. Not because by believing we establish these things to be true. But these things are true. And these things are true because the scriptures teach them. And the scriptures teach them so that we might believe them So that we might indeed rest upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. So that we might know and understand and believe 
that the Son of God became man for the sake of man to bring us to God. Only God can bring us to himself, but only one who is man can represent man to God and bring him there safely. One who is without sin. And because it's necessary for us to know this, necessary to our salvation to know and believe this as the very foundation and cause of our salvation and reconciliation with God, it's precisely why one of, this is one of the truths that is constantly and consistently assaulted and attacked. Not just by the world in unbelief, but by Satan and through all of his devices. As one put it, in speaking of Christ, says this person is both the eternal son of God with all the properties of the divine nature and truly human with all the properties of the human nature. Both of these natures in the one person of Christ need to be true and intact, preserving the properties of each in order for humanity to be reconciled with God and for a covenant that is the covenant of grace to be made. Likewise, in order to maintain this covenant so that according to the promise and oath of God, it is everlasting, both natures must remain forever with their properties intact, unless we want the foundation and basis of the covenant to be weakened. In other words, necessary for our salvation, necessary for us to know. He goes on to say this, that is why Satan has always tried and is still trying with his devices either to deny or at least to weaken one of the natures in the mediator of the covenant. When the root of a tree is damaged, the branches wither, and there can be no hope for fruit. In the same way, when the doctrine of the person of Christ and of the two natures in that person, each with its distinct properties, is corrupted, so also is the doctrine of the priestly and kingly offices of Christ, which are, as it were, the fruits of the doctrine of his person. In other words, Destroy the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ and you will destroy and weaken or at best weaken the truth and reality our understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. Take away the true deity Or the true humanity. Take away. The union. Of the two natures. In the one person. Of the son of God incarnate. And you will take away. The knowledge. Of Jesus. Who alone. Saves. His people from their sins. This is necessary for us to know, necessary for us to confess, necessary for us to proclaim as the truth 
of Holy Scripture. That the virgin was with a child. That the virgin brought forth a son. A son conceived by the miraculous and powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. A son whose name is Emmanuel. God with us. A son whose name is Jesus. For it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Do you desire to contemplate and consider your salvation? Then consider your Savior. Contemplate the truth of the Savior. The eternal Son. Who took to himself our flesh as he was conceived by the Spirit. And born of the Virgin Mary. Would you have confidence in your salvation? Would you have the assurance that all of your sins are forgiven? That all of your sins are covered in the sight of God? Then look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who took to himself your nature so that he might bear your sin and bring you safely to God. This is necessary for us to know, necessary for us to confess, necessary to believe. Your salvation and my salvation, any hope of salvation at all for sinners, hinges upon this person. Jesus, the Son of God, who for us and for our salvation became man. Look to Jesus. Even now as we come to the table, we are instructed to look to Jesus. So often as we come to the table, we fall into the temptation of thinking of ourselves. But the table points us to this Jesus, who in order to reconcile men, became a man. whose body was broken, whose blood was shed. Very real body. Very real human blood. All for the remission of our sins.